0: When you hear the phrase, I know what you did last summer, images of fresh-faced Freddie Prinze Jr., Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Gellar, and Ryan Phillippe probably come to mind. They're young, they're hot, and they're running away from a stalker sometime in the mid-90s. If this is exactly what you're thinking about, you're not wrong. The I Know What You Did Last Summer movie franchise was big. But did you know that there was a book that came first? Well, there was. It was written by Lois Duncan and published in 1973, and we're chatting about it on today's episode of SSR. Like its movie counterpart, the I Know What You Did Last Summer book is all about four teens. Julie, Ray, Helen, and Barry. We meet them one year after they caused a hit-and-run accident that killed a little boy. Barry was the driver, and he's now off at college being a total slime bag, in spite of the fact that he's still technically dating Helen, his high school girlfriend. Helen has pulled away from her dysfunctional family thanks to a gig as a future star at the local news station. Ray is coming home from a year of introspection, and Julie has been so affected by the guilt she feels post-accident that she has more or less retreated entirely from her life. The foursome begins getting mysterious clues indicating that someone knows that they're responsible for the little boy's death, starting with a letter addressed to Julie that says, No shocker here. I know what you did last summer. From there, we're off and running, following Julie, Ray, Barry, and Helen as they continue dealing with the fallout of their actions and as they try to figure out where these creepy new threats on their lives are coming from. Clearly, someone is on to them, and who knows what they'll do to get revenge. This week's guest is Anaïs, the producer and co-host of Literary Roadhouse, a podcast where book enthusiasts discuss a short story every week and a novel every month. She also currently works as a content marketer, helping brands tell their story, but she is pivoting toward becoming a teacher so she can bring her enthusiasm for learning to younger generations. In her spare time, Anaïs writes fiction of her own. I love the way that Anaïs shares the origin story of her love for reading and writing, which she says began, quote, baby teeth young. Her parents encouraged her reading at a young age. She was raised with values and beliefs distinctly Cuban and American, often complementary, sometimes conflicting. And she tells me that this upbringing influences the way she writes and digests fiction. I absolutely loved digesting this particular piece of fiction with her. Learn more about Anaïs's own literary podcast by following her on Twitter at Lit Roadhouse and on Instagram at Literary Roadhouse. I'll include all that info, plus a direct link to listen to the show, in the show notes at www.ssrpodcast.com. Don't forget to join us over on Patreon if you'd like to lend a little extra support to SSR. For just a few dollars a month, you can take advantage of awesome exclusive perks. Learn all about it at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support. Thanks to the awesome Patreon sponsors who are already doing so much to keep the pod going strong. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Pod, and you can track us down on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast. Are you ready to find out who did what last summer? Great. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional "WTF" to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkossack, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR podcast. Hi. I'm Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. Oh, thank you
1: for having me. This is really exciting. Uh, I haven't read middle grade stuff in a long time, so this was fun.
0: I love that we gave you an opportunity to do that. Look, I'm somebody who's reading a lot of YA, a lot of middle grade all the time, and sometimes it feels like a lot, but I do think like every once in a while it's kind of refreshing to get a chance to take yourself back in that kind of a reading time machine, so I'm glad I gave you a chance to do that. And I'm sure you're glad that you don't have to read another 10 YA or middle grade books now like I do. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, it felt a little bit like going back in time to the things I cared about at that age, right? Or like even in high school and then reading it now and being like, wow, like my tastes have changed so much, which isn't to say like I thought it was terrible or anything, just more like, yeah, this is no longer a super engaging read for me because I'm an adult now and that's so weird. (laughs) You know, just like that difference. Like at the time, this would have been like top-notch A-plus stuff.
0: Yeah. And look how far we've come. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was more like that. It was just like looking back at my old psyche. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. It's like going back and watching, no offense to all of the fans of like Full House and Saved by the Bell who still watch it earnestly Mm -hmm. now. But for me, it's sort of that experience of watching those shows and being like, were these so gripping to me when I was in high school that I like had to be home to watch them? I guess they are. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about I Know What You Did Last Summer by Lois Duncan. It was a 1973 novel. I just need everybody to understand, it was a book before it was a movie, okay? Like, I know this is shocking to a lot of people. It's, It's been a shock to a lot of people on my social media. I've been sharing that I've been reading it, and I've gotten so many messages from people who had no idea that it was a book before it came a movie, and then mid-90s.
1: And also I had a strange experience. I didn't realize that I bought um the 2010 version that all they did it, it reads like they did a search and replace on certain tech words or the wars instead of Vietnam now it's Iraq but nothing else has changed. So you get these strange like technological like hodgepodges where it's like they have cell phones but they're using house phones for reasons unknown. For some reason Barry's expected women to call him at his house line And also, one of the other characters listens to CDs. I'm like, what
0: year is this? It was just all over the place in a very funny way. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that too, because as you mentioned, they did some funny search and replaces in terms of like swapping out the Vietnam War for the Iraq War and a few Mm -hmm. other things. They talk about webcasts a lot, which is, I'm sorry, that's like such a a lame phrase to us in 2019. I'm sure at one point when they made this updated version, that was like the hot thing for news stations to do. But a webcast is like not really a priority for most media companies at this stage, or it's not right. called that. Also, things like HIPAA violations, like mm-hmm. the hospital is giving out all of this private information about its patients to people that are calling them. So it kind of seems like they updated the text in the ways that like made them feel a little bit hipper, but they didn't update it in a lot of ways that just makes it seem factually incorrect. Yeah, And it, it just kind of makes it feel a little bit less valid. Um, but it is kind of interesting that they updated it. I appreciated that. So yes, readers, there are some changes in the edition that Anais and I read for this recording as compared to the edition that you may have read when you were growing up or if you happen to have an old copy lying around that you feel so inspired to pick up after you hear us talk about it there might be some differences Um, I actually think there were a few like more substantive differences as well that we can talk about later but it's essentially the same story and interestingly it's not the same story as what you've seen in the movie so if you are interested in listening to the episode after you've already read the book don't count on the movie. Don't assume that you already know the whole plot based on the movie. I've never seen it, but I've read a lot of interesting articles about all the changes that they made. So if you're somebody that likes to listen to the show when you already kind of know what you're getting into, but you haven't read the book turn this off go find it or at least go read a wikipedia summary and then come back because you're going to have no idea what we're talking about if you're going by the movie alone that being said i am dying to know why you picked this book are you somebody who read it when you were growing up had you seen the movie and you wanted to see if the book was similar tell me your whole history with i know what you did last summer
1: so when you asked me to help choose a story this was part of a list that you had sent and i looked through all of them and a lot of them were very heavy very like growing up and some trauma happened in the childhood or Poverty, and I was just like, I want something light because on my show, we do a lot of like contemporary, deep literary stuff, which tends to be broody and heavy and traumatic. So I was just like, I need a break. So I didn't know that I know what you did last summer was a book first before it was a movie. And then I was like, wait, that is fascinating. So then I just started doing a quick Google search about it, and I'm like, oh, a thriller with teenagers running around. Like, this is perfect. This is the kind of like candy that I need right now to break me up from reading like some of my other heavier reading. Um, and it definitely delivered that. <laughs>
0: So, I'm so glad yeah. we could give you we could give you that sort of sense of refreshment in your reading life. Mm-hmm. I believe I read this when I was growing up. I couldn't be sure um, when I ordered it, and I, I thought maybe I had. And then when I started reading it, there were definitely nuggets of the story that I felt like I had been to before. You know, I was de- mm-hmm. definitely getting some reader deja vu while I was reading through it. I know I never saw the movie, um, and it's funny because, again, on, you know, sort of the social media discussion about this book has very much been focused on the movie and everybody He's like, you have to see the movie now. You have to see the movie now. And as much as I would like to see the movie because I want to see how these, like, 90s stars portrayed the characters, based on what I've read about how the plot differs between the book and the movie, I don't know. I might have to stay a book purist on this one. As much as I want to see early Freddie Prinze Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar, I don't know. I might have to stick to the book for now. The thing that surprised me the most is how, I don't know, can we just, like, jump into some plot stuff? Yeah, like, we, yeah, that's how we do it. We're just going to jump in and where do you want to go?
1: Yeah, so what I want to go is, the thing that surprised me the most is the first, like, half of the book was, like, pretty heavy on the thriller stuff. Like, oh, there's this letter, there's this newspaper clipping, there's all these, like, things that are happening. And then all of a sudden when it ends, it ends more on, like, a romance note. They're all having revelations about the romantic relationship. That's when I had that moment of, this is so young adult. Like, that's when I had that moment of, wow, how your tastes change over time. Because I would have eaten that up at that age, where now I'm like, wait a minute, this was a thrill that ended like a romance. This is so bizarre that only an adult brain I think would catch. Yeah. You know, it's a little yeah.
0: disjointed in that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, like, all of a sudden, like, Helen's being attacked. She has a home invader. She's breaking through glass to jump out the window of uh, the bathroom to, like, save herself. And her thought is like, oh, yeah, I could do better than Barry. Like, this is, <laughs> this is nuts. But also, that's what kind of made it fun as well. I think there's something about YA in general that takes itself seriously enough that for young readers, you identify with these characters, but not so seriously that you're bogging young readers down in, like, actual trauma. Because if you had Helen there living with what just happened to her. That's a completely different story. That's a lot heavier. That is now something that's gonna be on like the Booker Prize list. You need to bring it back to childish themes, even if you do something really heavy or else it's just like way too dark. So of course it ends with Ray being like, his punishment would have been taking you, Julie, away from me. Like of course it ends that way. Yeah, the last line You have to bring it back.
0: Yeah, the last line of the book is he knew the worst thing for me would be to stay alive in a world without you. Yeah, like I thought this was a thriller. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> enter Freddie Prince Jr. I think it is a very intense book for much of it. Um, I think the mystery is really well done, um, especially for the target audience. I think it's well paced. I think you start to have suspicions about who's behind all of this at the appropriate time. Mm-hmm. There's enough sort of distractions from that. I think it's like very well done for the teen audience. What I'm curious about, sort of, especially because we've already started talking about how it ends. Do you think that the book would have been made better if we had gotten a little bit more resolution about sort of what actually happens to these characters? Should they have been punished more? So again, for for listeners who haven't interacted with this content in a long time, essentially what happens in this book is that you have this group of four friends who have drifted apart from each other over the course of the year because a year ago they were involved in a hit-and-run accident where a 10-year-old boy was killed while they were on their way home from drinking and smoking as they celebrated the graduation of the two boys Ray and Barry and the whole story uh, sort of centers around the fact that somebody has come back to show them that they know what they did last summer because they have maintained a pact over the course of the year um, where they promised each other that they would never tell that it was the four of them that had killed this little boy and there's lots of drama that ensues over the course of the book but to fast forward to the end, while we do find out who was behind the threats on the kids' lives and, and we sort of solve that mystery and that crime and all of that intrigue, there's no sense that anything's going to happen to these four now that their involvement in the hit and run has been revealed. And it's out there now. Somebody has their number. Um, and do you think that the book would have been made better if there had been more resolution there? I read a Q&A with the author that was at the end of the edition that I had. I don't know if your edition had the Q&A with Lois Duncan. but The interviewer asked her why we don't get a sense of that resolution at the end of the book. And she said that she just felt like the book had come to its natural conclusion and that as long as readers knew that Julie, sort of our heroine, was okay and wasn't actually going to be strangled at the end, she felt like that was where it should end. But did you feel like it needed to go any further or were you satisfied with that?
1: So, this is again one of those things where if I'm looking at it now with the 30 year old's brain, it is a little unsatisfying to have it end in, okay, they're probably going to tell the cops, they're probably going to tell everyone the truth now, but we're not going to see that, we're not going to see what the consequences are. But when I keep bringing it back to, but who is the audience for this? Then I think it is satisfying because what we were talking about, it's not really about the crime and the end of the day. It's not really about the hit and run or the dead 10-year-old, which is an extreme thing to say, but that's the weird way in that like, the focus is very much, I think, Lois Duncan's right when she says it's about seeing Julie be okay, that the heroine at the end of this comes out okay, and not to mention Julie has the strongest moral compass. So the heroine's the one that has the strongest moral compass and then, of course, her boyfriend has the second strongest, right? Like there's a very clear ranking till you get to like Barry the worst, yeah. right? I had a lot of fun thoughts about Barry that we can get into. But, um, so in that sense, I think so because given the audience, what is the benefit of being like, and then Barry goes to trial for manslaughter, like, like going through all of that now, what is it now? Is it like a civic or criminal court? They don't, it changes the nature of the book and it's, I don't think that audience would necessarily, um, I was going to say they don't care. However, they don't care since they don't need it. They don't need to see that part of it.
0: Yeah, I guess yeah. you could argue that it would maybe drive home the sense that there are like consequences to your actions and that this sort of a pact isn't something to be glamorized. But I agree with you. I mean, I think it would become boring and maybe mm-hmm. you could have tacked on a few extra chapters as an epilogue that would illustrate what would mm-hmm. happen to these kids. But I do think that the rest of the book gives readers enough of a sense that like Barry is wrong and the fact that he... Insisted on covering up his actions is wrong. Like, I think there's enough of a sense of morality in the existing book. Mm -hmm. I don't think that most readers would be left questioning at the end whether or not it was right or wrong for them to cover up. The right. hit and run, And so I think in that sense, it's okay. I think if it was a little bit more ambiguous, I would have maybe been looking for that. But I feel like Lois Duncan does a good enough job just in terms of how she like crafts the relationships, how she designs the dialogue. I think she does a pretty good job of making it very clear that like Barry is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I think also there's a degree to which the way that they're suffering post the accident, right? Like Ray runs off for a year to California. A lot of also the way that they're quote unquote, like internally suffering, that they're feeling their their guilt um, about what happened just doesn't play well in 2019. Because mm-hmm. now if someone runs off to California to like pick up jobs, like that gap year is like a character building year. That's an awesome thing you should do. That's no longer like a sign of somebody having come apart. Or the fact that Julie focuses on her studies and is no longer dating which is somehow alarming to her mother while most mothers would be like thank god that was the best that conversation oh wasn't that the best That's right hilarious. like in the 70s it's like oh my god Julie's not dating something is seriously wrong in 2019 we're like go to Smith girl yeah. go get that degree so I think it's also just like there was a lot of cultural moments where I was like they updated the tech in weird ways but they didn't update the cultural norms so then I think for us it doesn't actually seem like they in any way are guilty but in the 70s it's like oh that behavior is a sign of their guilt right like oh my god Ray ran away instead of doing whatever you're supposed to do instead yeah I think that was part of it too it just doesn't look like a bad thing to us
0: yeah I think I think that's true so I think a great way to sort of really like dig into the content of the story is to go by characters So there's these four main mm-hmm. characters and I think we should just talk about each of them I did want to point out before we start talking about them that again part of this Q&A that's at the back of the latest edition of the book there's a conversation between the interviewer and Lois Duncan about this sense that there's this good girl, bad girl, good boy, bad boy characterization among the group. And here was what Lois Duncan had to say about that, which I think you might find interesting. I see very few people either in real life or in books as totally bad or good. In life, there are a few who may be totally bad because of some psychological disorder, but... We see them very seldom, thank goodness. What I try to do is present the main viewpoint character as someone the reader can relate to because I want at least one person the reader can like. If you don't have that, then the story itself doesn't matter because the reader doesn't care what happens to anybody in it. So in this case, I did have Julie and Ray, who are the more likable of the characters, and it was my choice to have a male and a female because it gives you a double readership. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how she sees this foursome um, and something else that's interesting that I'll point out and then we can we can dive right in is that she thinks that um, Helen is potentially like the most interesting of the four characters. So mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see what you think about that. But let's start with Julie because we open on Julie. As you mentioned, she has this interesting conversation with her mom because she's just gotten the news that she's accepted to Smith College. Yay, mm-hmm. that's amazing. And her mom is like, great, so proud of you. But also like, thank God something good happened for you because you've been such a lame loser the last couple months. Is <laughs> like really the crap. <laughs> of what she has to say.
1: Yeah, she's like, you've been studying so much instead of dating. Well, you've started seeing Bud. Thank God you've started seeing Bud. It's like, what What are these concerns?
0: Yeah, like you used yeah. to be a cheerleader and now you're not cool anymore. So like at least you got into college.
1: All the parents are pretty petty in this story, actually. Like all the parents just sort of, yeah, have very petty interests. Because yeah, her mom's got that whole like you haven't been dating. And then like Ray's dad's like, oh, at least you're dating a cheerleader. Like it's yeah. <laughs> like just all of this petty stuff. Yeah, um, all the
0: parents are kind of...
1: Weird. Yeah, yeah, they're all a little bit weird, and especially there's this long section where it's Julie's mom has all these like premonitions, right? I love that section because it was out of nowhere. Yeah, so random. Like, it was so random, and it almost felt a little bit like, is this like some very light version of like author intrusion? Is always Duncan like, oh, this is an experience that I had, and this is like the only adult character we get close to, so I'm putting it in there. Like, it just felt a little bit like this doesn't match up with anything else. But yeah, so. Julie, I thought was, she was so sort of like good and straight edge to the point of like almost boring. Like, I don't want to say I didn't care about Julie, but it's just like, again, because it's YA, it's like nothing's bad's going to happen to you. We all know that. Like, it just gets to a point where it's like, okay, so Julie's the good girl. Yep. I would agree Helen's the most interesting because there's no surprises with Julie.
0: Yeah. Well, and of course at the end, Julie is the one who ends up needing to be rescued. She's sort of like the fair maiden Mm -hmm. of the story. She Mm -hmm. ultimately is the victim of Bud's attempted murder murder. Um, He tries to strangle her. Spoiler alert, everybody. You know that we do spoilers on this show. And she luckily is saved by Ray, her ex-boyfriend. So yeah, you know, we do kind of get this sense, I think early on, that like she's going to be the one that is like the Mm -hmm. princess that needs to be saved. And no surprise, it happens. But I liked that she was the one who kicked us off. I liked that she was the one to get the first letter she did get, Mm -hmm. a note in the mail that says, I know what you did last summer. You know, Mm -hmm. sort of inspiring the title of the book. And she kicks off then this reunion of this group of friends that has drifted apart in the year since the accident. So she then goes to Helen and and kind of starts this whole search. Something else that made me laugh about about Julie's mom is that she's a home ec teacher, and at every scene in the book, she's like doing some kind of home ec. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, her mother was home making bread, like her mother was sewing. Yeah. Like I just thought that was kind of funny and like such a random <laughs> detail that we kept being reminded of throughout the story. Like, don't forget, mm-hmm. she's a home
1: ec teacher. Mm-hmm. And you know, something else that struck me since we're on the parents in 2019 almost felt inaccurate to have so it's three sets of parents are still married and together, and one one set, it's a widow, not divorced. And it's like, that's so strange. Like, in today's YA, there's almost always some kid that's a child of divorce, like, very often, and how that has changed as well it just sort of struck me, because, like, even some of the families where you wouldn't think that would persist as much, like, it's very much the parents and both of their roles. Even on, like, some minor stuff, right? Like, we see both of Helen's parents, we see both of Barry's parents, we see both of Ray's,
0: we see the dad for sure. I think Ray, I remember thinking that Ray's family was the- the one that we learned the least about. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like I knew the least about where Ray came from which I Mm -hmm. thought was interesting. And even though Helen comes from what I think we would call like the least traditional, perhaps most dysfunctional family, I think she still has two parents at home. Mm -hmm. Like to your point, even the girl that we're supposed to see as coming from a quote unquote broken home doesn't really. Like she has like so many siblings and they don't have a lot of money and they have a lot of challenges but I'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. her parents are still together. If not then there is at least a second parent figure in her home.
1: Right. And it, it struck me because I think like the Helen character in a lot of like modern fiction or contemporary fiction now would probably ha- be a child of divorce. One parent, not both. Typically the mom. Could be the dad, right? Mm-hmm. So that just struck me. Like, all of them have their parents together. That's so 70s. You know? Like, it just felt like wholesome in a way.
0: Yeah, it's like an yeah. artifact definitely of mm-hmm. 1973. Julie is sort of the character around the rest of the book turns. Ray is mm-hmm. her ex-boyfriend. There is Ray's best friend. You know, she's the center and then all of these other characters and situations are orbiting around her. We find out later that Bud slash Collie, who is the one who um, actually figured out that these Mm -hmm. four were behind the death of the 10-year-old boy, found his way to this group through Julie. He tracked Mm -hmm. her through the flower shop who had sent the family flowers because Julie, good girl that she is, sent a bouquet to the family anonymously after they killed their son, which seems, you know, like... A really lacking gesture given what they have caused. Mm-hmm. But again, like she, while she's sort of boring and I agree with you that I didn't really have that much invest in her personally, she is the catalyst for a lot of mm-hmm. things that happen um, and she ends up being Kali's way into the group, which sort of like allows us to learn about much more interesting characters and some other mm-hmm. cool things that go on outside of her. So yes, while she's a little bit dull, I think she was really significant in that way.
1: Yeah, and by being dull she becomes the character like Lois Duncan was saying, that the reader can see themselves in. I mean, in a way, even Ray is less defined than Barry, to a certain degree. So it's like the two uh, characters that Lois says, these are the two characters that the reader is supposed to identify with. The less specific you are about them, the more readers can just sort of become them as well.
0: Yeah, you could totally see yourself in Julie. I think almost any girl who has experienced high school, at least here in America, has had moments of feeling like Julie. You know, moments of feeling like you once had friends, and now you don't anymore, or these feelings Mm -hmm. of feeling like you're disappointing your parents. Right in the first few pages of the book, we find out that, like, she had felt so much pressure to live up to her mom's expectations of going to Smith, which is hilarious, because then her mom, like, isn't that excited about her getting into Smith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, like, a lot of the feelings that Julie experiences are very, like, simple ones that so many of us have gone through ourselves. So she's extremely relatable, and because she doesn't have that many distinctive qualities of her own i think you can sort of like project yourself into into her. exactly so let's talk about our other quote-unquote good character ray who is Uh julie's ex-boyfriend he's back he's disappeared for a year to find himself in california um which i love and now he's back one of my favorite things about him was just the way that there are these clues sprinkled throughout the book that like don't worry guys, he's good. He always tips the waiter. That's not a line that you need to include as the author, but these right. little clues throughout are reminders that like he's out to coffee with a guy who's not going to tip the waiter, but Ray is. Like He is the good one. He's the one you're supposed to root for.
1: Right, yeah. And the other thing I liked about Ray is how in the descriptions of Ray, it's like you couldn't decide, so is he hot or not? <laughs> like There's all of these descriptions that are like, oh, he's like the runty one. He didn't really have a body for sports, but he's, he's kind of dreamy in his own different way, especially now that he's back from California and he's like more tanned and his hair is more blonde, like I'm like wait, so is he hot or is he not? Did he have an ugly duckling summer? Like I know that's beside the point, but when all the other characters, their level of hotness is very important, right? Like yeah. it's very much ranked. Like Helen, absolute hottest, Barry, oh second hottest, right? Like which again felt very both artifacts of the '70s and YA. Who's the hottest? This is super important. Julie, she's pretty,
0: but she's not hot. Right. We need to know this. Yeah, like, she's cute. She's cute, not she's cute. hot. Definitely she's not cute. sexy. Not sexy at yeah. all, but super cute. Cute, mm-hmm. Probably would yeah. be beautiful, but maybe not hot.
1: Exactly. Like just the amount of detail that went into everyone's physical descriptions, not in terms of like what they look like, but how hot they are compared to everyone else was great. And then so Ray was the one where like, I can't decide where he is on this ranking of hotness. But aside from that, again, I felt like Ray, I didn't have as clear a sense of who he is. Like we have all of these insights into um, what Julie thinks, what Ray thinks, what Helen thinks. Helen out out loud in her own apartment says bizarre stuff sometimes. But Ray, we don't have as many internalizations with Ray. He's a, a little bit of like a blank canvas. Like he's just like the right boyfriend for the good girl and that's it
0: he's the hero sure he's a little bit of yeah. like a Ken doll maybe like very much yeah. the archetype good guy the one you would want to bring home to your parents I loved your, your the conversation about hot or not because it's so true of YA books and because the thing about it is it's often it's not showing, it's telling. It's like the author mm-hmm. usually comes out and is like, no, this person is good looking and it doesn't really yeah. matter the details <laughs> of how good looking they are. Um, they're just good yeah. looking and you need to know that. Yeah, so Ray is a, is a good guy. He is definitely still in love with Julie. They haven't spoken in a year because Julie doesn't want to talk about what happened. Um, and Ray is still sort of fixated on wanting to come clean. He, the night of the accident, was the one to call 911 after they got home. He definitely didn't want the little boy to be on the side of the road. He wanted somebody to go get him and make sure that he could be saved if that was even a possibility. And what I thought was especially interesting about Ray's role is that we find out that the only reason that Ray wasn't driving the car is that he and Barry flipped a coin to see who would drive home. Um, So I believe it was Barry's car, but um, they'd all been drinking and smoking pot up at this party and before they left, they just flipped a coin to see who would drive. And Mm -hmm. it just so happened that Barry was the one driving and Ray Mm -hmm. was making out with Julie in the backseat of the car the whole ride home. So he doesn't really remember what happened probably because Mm -hmm. he was drinking partially, but also because he was distracted by his girlfriend. And I think that sort of the arbitrary nature of him being in the back seat is probably a huge part of why he's felt so guilty. Like, the girls were never going to be the drivers, which, again, an artifact of the 70s, probably. Mm -hmm. Like, it was always going to be one of the guys driving. So they feel icky about being in the car, Mm -hmm. but they probably never feel like it could have been them that was literally behind the wheel. Whereas Ray, I'm sure, carries this feeling of, like, it could have been me or maybe I could have prevented it if it had just been me that was in the driver's seat. And so I think that's probably part of what plagues him in addition to the fact that we're just meant to believe that he has a stronger moral compass than Barry.
1: Mm -hmm. And you know um, there's a line though where I think. Julie's talking to him about that, and she says something about how, if he had been driving, that Barry drives too fast, Ray didn't drive her fast. And Ray, to defend his decision and the pact with Barry, says, no, it could have been me, it could have been any of us, like, I'm no better, I don't know what I would have done in that situation if it had been me who had hit him. But one of the other parts that I liked about one of the few internalizations that we get from Ray is Ray thinking back to the night of the accident, and he's like, he'll never forget that night. Julie was wearing that pink shirt that would ride up and show off her toned, exposed belly. I'm like, why? Why again? It's not hot, though. It's a cute
0: exposed belly. It's not a hot belly. Yeah,
1: not a hot one, right? But it's just like, he's like thinking back on like this trauma. I think this is after he receives the newspaper clipping. And it still goes back to teenagers dating and make it out. That's what constantly made me say, like, this is so middle grade. This is so, or even high school. Everything comes back to her shirt writing up. I'm like, Why? (laughs) just unnecessary but I loved it I loved it in this almost like voyeuristic way of like looking into the past or like looking into like a completely different
0: set of preoccupations and priorities yeah because it's true that those are the things that as a kid you probably would have been curious about like well why were Mm -hmm. they in the backseat why Mm -hmm. doesn't he remember and Lois Duncan knowing that like kids are fixated on romance and love like it's because he was in love with his girlfriend and he was really Mm -hmm. having a good time that night but he really can't let go of his guilt I'd say even more so than Julie like he has been struggling with this and he wants to figure out how to make right after Barry gets shot which we'll get to momentarily Mm -hmm. um, Ray is still sneaking in to visit him in the hospital and being like dude we have to break this pact not only because one of us could get hurt because clearly somebody has our number but also because it's wrong that we never came clean like there's this family that's grieving we find out through Julie and Ray like sneaking to visit the little boy's Mm -hmm. family that the mother has been sent away to a hospital because she has really had like a mental breakdown over this and then the father has followed her and and moved out of the family home. So this family is really broken because of Mm -hmm. what these four teenagers have done, and Ray really, really struggles with that, which you know, we're meant to believe is why he ran away to California for a year. But I don't get the sense that he's come home with that much clarity. Like I don't think that he's quote unquote found himself or found peace with any of it, do you? No, he definitely hasn't. But
1: he is um the one who's sort of more open to the idea of breaking the pact. And somehow this pact is like some ironclad legal contract, the way that they speak about it, like, well, you can feel guilty all you like. Barry literally says this to Ray, but you can't dissolve the pact on your own. It's like, what is this pact? Like why is it to- I'm like, I'm pretty sure anyone could dissolve the pact on their own. It's very flimsy. But they all treat it like it's this like binding agreement. Like Their lives are like wrapped up in it. Berries might be to a certain degree. But yeah, no, when Ray comes back, it almost seems like he comes back with two things. Like one, it's to get Julie back because this is still a young know, adult book. And then two, it's he realized, he kept saying a few times over and over, he realized he can't run away from the problem. He has to face it. So he's coming back wanting to face it, but... He feels he needs to get everyone on board with dissolving the pact because you can't go rogue, apparently.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess ultimately if he felt badly enough, like you said, I mean, this is not a legally binding agreement. He could have called the cops at any time, especially because right. he's been in another state for the right. last year. Like, he doesn't feel that badly. And I, the other interesting detail that the author includes in, includes in the story is that Ray skipped a grade or he somehow, like, tested out. He's a year younger than everybody in his grade. So when he graduated, he was 17, which means that the night of the accident – Barry was the only legal adult in the car. Mm -hmm. Julie and Helen were both juniors or finishing up their junior year. Ray was a year younger than his classmates. So Barry, who happened to be the driver, was also the only one who would Mm -hmm. have been up for a, a punishment to like an adult degree. He was the only one that was really going to be prosecuted to like the full extent of the law whereas any of the three of the others probably would have gotten some sort of a fine maybe community service. I'm not really sure what in 1973 would have been appropriate but the point is that Barry's the only one who really would have been screwed by coming forward and that sort of adds this additional tension because Barry and Helen are basically like right it's really easy for you to say that we need to come clean and do the right thing but you're not going to be the one who's going to be sent to jail and who's really going to serve time and pain for what's happened. Barry is the only one who's in that position. Exactly, yeah. The other thing about Ray that I think is worth mentioning is that he's very insecure. And I think we, we noticed that at points throughout the book. The only thing we really know about his dad is that he is like a badass football player. And mm-hmm. you mentioned this briefly before, but Ray is small. You know, he's not built for contact sports. Um, he's not super aggressive. And he's sort of been a letdown to his dad in a lot of ways. Um, his dad's like, proud of the fact that he dated a cheerleader briefly but that's like kind of the only positive encouragement that he gets from his father so I think we're meant to get the sense that like he's a little insecure and definitely leans toward being more sensitive and like his strengths are maybe in his interpersonal skills because he's had to cultivate those knowing that he's never going to be like this big aggressive guy.
1: But he also has the most sort of like self-aware type lines in the narrative because in that whole passage with his dad where it's talking about how he knew his dad was always disappointed in him for um, not being more athletic. But he also knew that if he just kept having values in sport and athleticism, if his best friend was um, the varsity football player, if he's tutoring all the other like football remember he was also the tutor to the whole football team, then his dad could at least respect that. And that's a level of awareness that I'm not sure kids that age necessarily have, where he's like, I know that if I just continue at least acting like the things that my dad considers are the most important, are the most important, even if I'm not built to necessarily engage with them in the way that my father would prefer, in that way I can make my dad happy. Like that caught me off guard. Cause again, that was a level of awareness that the characters never have about anything and also it's complex that's a very complex way to think of a father-son relationship that came out of nowhere because very few other um, relationships between parents and their child are that complex because we see a lot of detail about barry and his mother and it's not a very nuanced or complex uh, position that barry holds it's very like get off me mom right stupid mom Yeah. But then, you know, there's this really nuanced one with Ray and his father that I thought was, it was, I thought it was great, actually. I thought, like, that's a good thing for a young kid to read, to be able to see that, to be able to see that complexity. Because Ray, despite knowing that his father would prefer that he was an athlete, also knew his father loved him. It was sweet. And probably very helpful for kids to read.
0: Yeah, I liked their relationship. I generally really liked Ray. I totally would have been in love with him. He would have been, like, mm. my dreamboat at my high school. And I think Freddie Prinze Jr., again, having not seen the movie, but watching mm-hmm. the trailer, I think he was, like, the perfect actor to be cast in that part. And you have offered a great segue to Barry by leading us in with a brief introduction to his relationship with Ray. They they were best friends at least senior year. We don't really get a sense of if they were friends like for years before that, but they definitely went out of high school on a high note. They were BFFs, which is really the only reason that Julie and Helen were friends, and that kind of makes me laugh because anybody who's been in a relationship knows that dynamic mm-hmm. all too well where you find yourself best friends with your partner's best friends partner because you're just hanging out together um, so i appreciated mm-hmm. that but Barry is Ray's best friend, and he could not be any more different than Ray. I would say that was maybe the one thing that was sort of lacking for me where I was like, I don't quite understand what holds them together, except right. for the fact that Ray really wants to have his hand in this, like, athletic world. Because Barry is, to put it bluntly, Barry is an asshole. Yeah, uh, he's the worst. He's the worst. Barry is toxic masculinity embodied. Like, he is, yeah. that is the definition of toxic masculinity to me. We could go on about that for probably a full hour. There's so much wrong with him. Him, not just the way that he handles the accident, but like the way he interacts with everyone, especially women.
1: Mm-hmm. Actually, I made a comment to my boyfriend as I was reading this, and I was just like, "Barry, as a teenager in the '70s, he's the reason we're having a Me Too movement now. Like, he, this is it. This is the connection. It's that guy from yeah. the '70s who grew up with these ideals. He's doing the shit now. <laughs> like
0: yeah, that's where it starts. That's totally yeah. where it starts. He mm-hmm. is gross. We meet him just kind of as this like frat guy." walking around campus and he has Helen as his girlfriend, his high school girlfriend who he was definitely going to dump but then she got this cool job as like the future star on the local news station he decided he should keep her around but he's also referring to girls as Ashley something or other from the Tri-Delta house. Like he doesn't even know Mm -hmm. the names of the girls that he's seeing Mm -hmm. and it seems as though sleeping with. He just has no regard for Mm -hmm. anyone. Again, especially women. Like his whole goal in life is to hook up and date and sleep with as many women as possible and that's like like he takes a lot of pride in that. It seems like that's why he joined the fraternity. He talks about being so busy studying all the time, but studying is really just like a euphemism for flirting and sleeping with women who are not his girlfriend
1: also like the whole thing where he's like oh he was totally gonna break up with Helen but he's got to admit that whole future star thing made her like basically a trophy that he could show off around town and have as a girlfriend right and not only that but then later when he decides he's gonna break up with her over the phone he's like oh I can use the fact that she's been nagging me to hang out as a way to start a fight that I don't actually I'm not actually angry about to break up with her like he's cowardly like the imaginations he goes through to he's like how am I gonna stage a fight to break up with my girlfriend over over the phone. It's like, why are you the worst? He's cowardly on top of it all. And again, this goes back to all the weird technology stuff. There's a lot of uh, plot points that could have been solved with the cell phone, which they all have, but uh-huh. we're going to bring it back to the landline every time. And that happens a lot too with things like um, the, the, big, the big turning point, which is somebody called the frat landline. Barry had a call with someone. No one knows who it is. And <laughs> then he went out. Was it Helen? Was it another woman? Was it the guy who's harassing them? And it's like okay, but if they have cell phones, Helen would have been texting him. This would have been resolved.
0: Like, we know this. Or the <laughs> so like landline that. at least has caller ID. Like, there's a way yes. to track this for sure. Right.
1: This can all be cracked, right? Yeah. And 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 the other thing about Barry is like, so okay, he has a bad attitude towards women. He has all this talk to masculinity stuff. He loves to speed and show off and he's got all this swagger. And he's such a dick to his mom I mean I understand his mom's overbearing but like come on like he wants to go to Europe he wants to go backpacking in Europe with his frat brothers and she's like oh we were gonna go visit family on the coast and he's like immediately bristles he overreacts to her suggestion that they should go visit family on the coast my
0: god yeah I really didn't like Barry he reads as like a 25 year old and not as a college freshman and I guess when you're A kid reading a book like this, you don't necessarily know the difference. I reading this as probably a late middle schooler, early high schooler probably was like, oh yeah, this is totally how an 18 year old acts. But no, he's totally like speaking to his family members not just as a 25 year old, but like as a 25 year old's asshole. Um, Mm -hmm. And just like the way he's sort of like conducting his affairs and like going about his life is so removed from what it's actually like, I think, to be a college freshman. He's awful to his mom, but his relationship with his mom is interesting and I felt very much like her behavior towards him, cultivated his negative attitude toward women. Um, mm-hmm. There's one flashback to a conversation that Helen had with his mother on the phone and she says, Barry is a boy who doesn't react well to being chased. If he wants to talk with you, he will do the calling. Your little affair will last longer that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so his mom and the way that she seems to define gender roles and, like, what's appropriate in a relationship has definitely kind of brought him to this point. And again, I think this is a holdover from the 70s. Like, Mm -hmm. that attitude is very much, you know, one of a few decades ago, and hopefully not one that a lot of people ascribe to in 2019. But they had this relationship where I felt like his mother definitely babied him and Mm -hmm. wanted to protect him all the time, and just took a lot of abuse from him emotionally. Like, he was awful to her, and she just kept acting like he was the golden child. And making it seem like every woman should be around to serve him and do exactly what he wants them to do.
1: And also her willingness to blame women. I know she doesn't like Helen because Helen's like low class, which is already terrible. Because Barry, oh that's the other thing, Barry's family's wealthy, Helen's family's poor. Yeah, there's so a low class that,
0: thing in their relationship which is yeah. interesting.
1: When they think it's Helen who had called Barry before he left the frat house and got shot, his mom's like I knew she was trouble. And it's like really, are you really blaming like a 17 or 18 year old girl? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like her willingness to just like shove things off on. Other women and well part of it felt like artifacts of the 70s because then helen's there thinking like no it wasn't me like having to defend herself from this crazy accusation like no one in 2019 would be like helen you should feel guilty for this if you had called like even if she had called this is not her fault so there's that weird way in which like this willingness for like helen to take the blame for anything that happens to barry felt strange a little bit and how everyone's like well especially barry's mother really wants to pin this on her in a way that even if Helen had called is insane. Just made, like, the whole Cox family, except for the dad, just not well-adjusted. Barry's not well-adjusted. His mother's not well-adjusted. And the father is sort of removed, right? He has that argument with um, Barry's mother about how you always coddled him. I'm not saying it's only your fault. I could have been more active in his life as well. Like, that family has, like, a very heteronormative
0: level of dysfunction. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's important to note that Barry's goal, really, for the second half of the book, after he gets shot, is to... Imply as hard as he can Mm -hmm. that there's no foul play going on. Like he really wants Mm -hmm. to scrape this whole situation with a hit and run under the rug. So As much as the other three main characters are starting to believe that the reason he got shot is connected to the hit and run, Barry wants to do everything he can from his hospital bed, mind you, Mm -hmm. to prove that it was just like an accident or somebody who, you know, was part of their inner circle. Like he really does not want anybody to believe that this could be the previous summer sneaking up on them because he doesn't want to get caught. He doesn't want to have to talk about breaking the pact. So his first reaction is to lie and say that Helen was the one who called or at least not to disagree when other people imply that it was Helen who made the call as you said his mom is very quick to accuse Helen then when people start to figure out that it wasn't Helen because Helen's like no I didn't call him he just blames it on some some other girl so his like next plan of attack Mm -hmm. is just to blame it on some other woman and sort of lean into his identity as a womanizer and then in the end he's like well it could have been a woman like I don't know I couldn't really tell who it was on the phone and we find out that it was a man so like it's just interesting the way he really sticks to this story of like it has to be some girl who's like getting me into trouble. It couldn't possibly be somebody calling me out for the fact that I hit a child with my car. It's just an interesting approach that he has to life. And he's so condescending, like in the early part of the book, when Julie and Helen come to him and are like, we're getting these letters, it seems like maybe something's up. He's very quick to be like, you guys are so stupid, it's probably just a prank. Julie, it must be somebody at school who thinks you're hot. He really doesn't even want to hear them out and try to understand why they're getting worried. He just wants to explain it away as like stupid high school stuff and Probably having to do with hotness, because that's sort of mm-hmm. the currency on which his whole world runs. Also, since we're talking about
1: like Barry's like womanizing, so remember when Collington, what's his name, Wilson? Collinswood, yeah, yeah Collin, Collingsworth Wilson. But he goes by Collie. So when Collie takes Helen to the hospital, gives her a ride there, because again, women aren't driving. The mother, afterwards, when she's telling Barry this, because Barry doesn't know that Helen was there with Collie, she's like, "Oh yes, she came here with her little boyfriend. They seemed awfully close." So first of all, the mother is like trying to sow the seeds of discord and wants to break them up. And then Barry leaps on that, and he's like, "Oh Helen, that two timer! How dare she have a boyfriend? We never said we were exclusive, but how dare she? Sure, I've been sleeping around, but it's different when she does it. And it's like, my God." He's just like leaning into being the worst. Fuck off Barry, honestly. I know, he's the worst. He sucks so much. And also, I like how his mom's just there like, they seemed awfully close. And it's like, how old are you, Mrs. Cox?
0: (laughs) Yeah, this this family has gotten themselves in like a really dangerous emotional cycle of just like validating everything that the other says. And there's some really Mm -hmm. toxic ideas going on among the Cox family. So let's come to Helen because we spoke about her earlier as... Lois Duncan's potentially most interesting character. Um that's how she feels how she perceives Helen. And I agree. I think she comes from the most unique background. As we mentioned, her family is the least functional, um, at least in a traditional sense. It seems as though her mother had her when she was very young and has had many, many children since. They don't have a lot of money. There's an implication that the older siblings are working to pay off things for the younger siblings. Helen's older sister, Elsa, is extremely resentful of Helen because Elsa is expected to work and then her salary for Funds portions of Helen's life and so it's it's this very sort of unhappy family life and Helen's really had to like lean into things she's good at which is what Lois Duncan highlights in the Q&A that I mentioned. She talks about how like she had a different set of tools available to her as a woman and a different set of resources and she realizes that she can lean into her beauty in a way that's going to help get her ahead and we could debate that all day if we wanted to, you know, how as women should we or shouldn't we capitalize on our bodies or on our sexuality or on how beautiful Mm -hmm. we are. But I think that Helen realized that those were the cards that she was playing with and she Mm -hmm. really wanted to get out of where she was and she applied to this contest to become a special, like, rising star on the local news station and she got it. And I I will say that I appreciated that she was very aware of her sexuality. Like, there's a scene Mm -hmm. at the pool in her, like, fancy apartment complex that she can now afford to live in where she's like, I know how great I look in my bikini. I know I look better than all of these other girls. But she is also pretty protective of herself. And I, I think that... That's not a bad model for young readers. Like she's aware and confident in how she looks, but like she's also very cautious about how she interacts with people that could be taking advantage of her, except Barry, of course, because Barry is the worst, and she doesn't seem to get that, but I, I think she strikes really healthy balance of, like, knowing the power of sort of her, like, feminine ways, but not going too far with it.
1: I also like that Helen had this moment when she was, I think, towards the end of middle school or beginning of high school, This is another like, after Ray's relationship with his father, this might be the second most, like, self-aware passage, where she's just staring at herself in the mirror, and she's like, what are my best features? What are the features I need to work on? What can I do with my hair? What can I do with my makeup? Like, once she decides, this is My way out. I'm gonna use my looks as my best tool as a way out. Because like you were saying, we can debate whether or not women should do that. But I think if you're gonna do that, if you're the one deciding how you're gonna do that, and like you said, in a way that she's very protective of herself as well, and knowing the concessions she's making, the concessions that she's not willing to make, I think that's okay, right? It's not like some guy came in and was like, We're gonna use your your beauty for like my benefit or for my financial gain. She's doing it to herself in a very knowing way, which I think helps. And it again was remarkable that someone that young is staring at themselves in the mirror and just dissecting point by point, not in a hysterical way. In a okay, this is what I need to do to get ahead. But I will say it's hilarious to me that an 18-year-old with a webcast somehow has made bank. Like, how is that a lucrative job? That is not a lucrative job at all. Like that is now woohoo, she's rolling in it. I like how the name of her apartment co- complex is the Four Seasons. Yeah, just like referencing like the mega wealthy hotel chain. It's like um, this is insane. Also why is it that at the Four Seasons it's all hot young people because <laughs> all, all her neighbors are hot young people and then there's like those two teachers this wasn't something else that felt like an artifact of the 70s it's when Helen's there with Kali before we figure out that Kali's the bad guy and they're friends and Kali's hot because everyone's hot. hot and the hot teachers come over and they're flirting with Kali but Kali only has eyes for Helen and then the hot teachers are like leave some for the rest of us you already have Barry you have to be so gluttonous I think they use the word gluttonous. Right, like, right, something like that. Yeah, and I'm like, um, like this also felt really just unrealistic. I don't understand why there's a gaggle of hot people here, and I don't think anyone talks that way anymore. Uh, It was really funny to me.
0: It's sort of like Melrose Place in that way, right? Where it's Mm -hmm. this sort of like this apartment complex of hot people. And I've never lived in a suburb as an adult, but I do have this vision of like suburban apartment complexes that have like big pools in the middle where like everybody is just sort of like hooking up with each other. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's like this, it's a very different life than anything that I've ever experienced because I've always lived in a city as an adult, but it sort of fed into that image that I have of like life as a 20-something in a suburb where like these mysterious apartment complexes exist and like you can have this bustling social life if you live in <laughs> one. But yeah, to your point, like here's a newsflash everyone. Journalism is not a high-paying industry. Mm-hmm. What Helen is doing at least today would be the equivalent of like an unpaid internship and I don't know, maybe in the 70s it was different. Like you think about somebody like a Barbara Walters or like a Diane Sawyer who came up around that time and like it seems like it was a much more glamorous time mm-hmm. and and maybe there was money at a different level but still I mean this is a little bit hard to believe even with that in mind but I think the other cool thing about Helen is that like she shows that there's a different path to success than Julie's like Julie is sort of staying the course she's going to college she's going to a really good college theoretically if if she does what we hope she does after the end of the book and it's because she has a different set of resources like we were saying like she is a supportive mom she theoretically has financial resources that can support her through her education and Helen doesn't have that and I think it's actually kind of great for young readers to see that like even if you don't have those resources available to you like there's more than one way to be successful and you can figure it out if you're a little scrappy and you're willing to like get creative with the things that you're good at and like you said maintain control of your body and your goals and all of those things and not see mm-hmm. your choices to others I think it's like kind of great that Lois Duncan illustrates that there's other ways to grow up mm-hmm. and other ways to find success especially financially because honestly Helen's kicking ass right now like she's way more independent financially and otherwise than anybody else in this book
1: Mm -hmm. and going back to the moral compass thing because Helen's not supposed to be as far gone as Barry because she's sometimes portrayed as shallow like oh she used to buy thrift shop dresses but now look at the dresses she's buying but you know there's that line about how she still does send money home to her parents right like she still has I think dinner with them every weekend like that responsibility to family is still there as well and even in the way that she's very loyal to Barry as Miss guided as it is, that's still good qualities to have in a person. She's naive and gullible. Barry's not the person she should be wasting those efforts on, but it's not bad of her to be somebody who is loyal and unshakable in that way. So, like, she has a lot of good qualities mixed in with some of, like, the shallower stuff. And, you know, one thing that I thought was funny, though, is that some of these sort of, like, more shallow values that she has are shared with the other characters without them realizing. So one of my favorite things is when they're suspecting if Helen's sister Elsa, because she is so jealous, is the one who shot Barry and has been sending all of the horrible notes and my sense was of all the reasons why Elsa is a bad person the number one one is because she's chubby like for some reason her chubbiness is how you know she's potentially a bad person
0: like i'm like this is definitely an artifact of the 70s she could only possibly hate helen because she's thin and elsa isn't
1: yeah i know especially since on the other hand elsa's given all of these lines where you're like yeah i kind of agree with elsa on this one Where like she's like you don't work that much helen because helen what is it she rolls out of bed she's at work by noon she's done by like six or something like she's not really working that much and elsa's working i think in a department store selling lingerie breaking her back long hours retail for like almost no money so when elsa has his resentment i'm like I mean, you shouldn't begrudge your sister, but I get why you're mad. And it's like, no, it's she's she's bitter cause she's fat, guys. It's like this book has a weird body thing going on right now that
0: again felt very like from the '70s. We don't speak that way anymore. Did you believe for any minute that it was Elsa who God, no. was onto that No, so that didn't that didn't no. effectively distract you.
1: No, it didn't. It was if that was a red herring, it was the worst red herring. Because again, I think it's because in 2019, being fat isn't enough of a reason to be shooting people like yeah. this is this is a, a strange uh connection here actually one thing I thought was interesting is I would have loved for it to be the hatch sister that they met at the house the woman who Megan I was, think was her name Megan yes it would have been great if it was
0: Megan like what a twist I was waiting for it to be Megan but that's it's the 70s it can't be Megan I kind of thought it was Megan at first too but then I was like there's so much more of this book to go like they meet mm-hmm. Megan I'd say like a third of the way through and I was like yeah. too soon so how far into the book book were you before you realized that it was Kali slash Bud. And to clarify for listeners, Kali and Bud are the same person. Bud is Julie's new boyfriend um, who's a little bit older than she is. He is an Iraq war veteran, although in the original book he was a Vietnam war veteran. And then Kali is this guy who lives in Helen's fancy apartment complex who's been flirting with her and befriending her. And in the end, we find out that Collie is posing as Bud to get to Julie. So they're they're one and the same and we do find out ultimately that he's seeking revenge on behalf of his younger half-brother who is the little boy who was killed in the Hit and Run. So he's come back from war to find that his brother is dead. He has traced the events of this through the flower shop that sent flowers to the family anonymously but from Julie and he's now like posed as Julie's boyfriend. He's gotten in touch with Helen. He's fully embedded himself into this group. He shot Barry and here we are. How far were you into the book before you realized that it was probably him?
1: Um, So here's one thing. Pretty early on I was like "Mm," I thought he could be a suspect pretty early on. But the thing that kept throwing me is there's a line that says that Kali saw on the news the report that Barry got shot and that's why he went to Helen's. So anytime I'm like, oh, it must have been him. But I'm like, wait a minute. Then why that line about how he saw it on the news and then he went to Helen's if that's how he found out? Like, why did the book distract me with that line? So anytime I thought it was him, I'm one of the points where I was like, it's got to be Kali was when Bud met up with Ray. I get that point. I started suspecting. So when Bud met up with Ray for coffee, I'm like, come on, come on. It's gotta be. But then, again, I had that little voice in my head saying, but Kali found out through the news. So that line I think should not have existed because it sort of undermines, is that line a lie in the narrative? Because what we know is, no, Kali's the one who shot Barry. So that was very confusing for me. But, yeah, by the time we got to Bud, I'm like, maybe Bud is different than Kali because we didn't yet know that Kali was a a veteran. It was as soon as we find out that Kali was a veteran, it was after the Bud scene when he, like, tells Helen she's shallow and she sucks. And he's like, I'm interesting, by the way. I'm a war vet. I'm like, oh, there we go, okay, fine, he's bud. I suspected early on, and yet that one line kept undermining my suspicion.
0: Well, if they'd more comprehensively updated the text in terms of technology, then maybe we could have been made to believe that, like, he got an alert on his phone and he was, like, out and about or something. Mm -hmm. But you're right, like, it doesn't really make sense that he would have been sitting at home watching the news at the same time that he was shooting Barry himself. So that was sort of a glaring error. But I agree. I started to have suspicions around the same time when Ray had coffee with Bud and he was like, he starts to talk about sort of this sense of purpose that he picks up on in Bud that like he has this look in his eyes, that like anything he wants he can get. And it starts mm-hmm. to feel like maybe Bud's a little bit more sinister mm-hmm. than he may have seemed at first. And then I was like, I think Bud's part of it. And then, yeah, you start to pick up on the fact that like Kali and Bud are one and the same. But I do think that the mystery was well done. I think it was like mm-hmm. appropriately complex for this audience. I definitely had a moment of like, oh, it's him. It's the same guy. Um, which Mm -hmm. is very satisfying as a reader, especially as a reader that doesn't read a lot of thrillers. And I think it was a really well-done thriller. And I think the plot Mm -hmm. was well-constructed with the exception of like a few little holes like the one we just talked about. All in all, would you recommend this to a young reader in your life? I don't know. I don't read enough middle
1: grade stuff to see how it compares with everything else. I think the reason why I hesitate... has nothing to do with the plot and the characters themselves. It's a lot of those artifacts of the 1970s, the sort of normative cultural stuff that we've shifted away from so much that I'm just like, "Ah, there's gotta be better stuff out there that doesn't have these sort of, like, oopsies going on. Like, there was just some of those things where I was like, ah, I don't know if this is, like, you know, the kind of thing that, let me put it this way, if a child reads this, it's not gonna ruin them. So definitely read it. Like, if this is, if some kid picks up and they're like, I wanna read this, it'd be like, go for it. Like, it's not gonna, like, ruin you for the rest of your life because you think that maybe Bad people shoot people. <laughs> like, you know, like all those little like oopsies aside, like a uh, kid growing up in today's world will overcome that no problem. But is it like the best crafted middle grade thriller? I don't know enough about the genre to know if this would be like my top 10. Like I would need to like read more other stuff. Like the only young adult stuff that I read now is what goes mega blockbuster, like the Hunger Games and Allegiant. Like only when something co- is so huge on the radar that I feel like if I don't read it, I don't know what's going on in culture, then I'll pick it up. But um, th- like you said, like the plot construction part of it, the fiddle part of it was very well done. Uh, you really only start hardcore suspecting Kali. College- At the time, you're supposed to. Like in a thriller or in a mystery, you're supposed to start guessing who it is pages before the big reveal. Um, And for the most part, that it was laid out in that way. I just, I wish if they were going to
0: update it, update it, like but really update it, like update some of these old ideas. Like that would be great. I agree. I think it would have been easier to look at comprehensively if it sort of existed 100% as this piece of of pop culture from the 70s and there Mm -hmm. hadn't been this attempt made to update it. It's like either do it or don't. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think when I read it in middle school or high school, which again, I'm like 80% sure that I did. It was just like, yeah, this is like a book from the 70s and you pick up on the things that like don't necessarily fit with our, our up-to-date worldview and you realize that that's just a sign of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a little bit more confusing given that they sort of like half-assed these updates. That being said, I really enjoyed it. We don't, we haven't read a lot of thrillers for SSR. And like I said, I don't mm-hmm. read a lot of thrillers in my life. And so it was kind of fun to like have this little treat and I moved through it really quickly. Usually I ask our guests, when they've read a book previously, if the experience of rereading it has ruined it for them or or made them love the Mm -hmm. book all the more. I would say, again, knowing that I probably read this as a kid, I think this made me love it all the more. It will be memorable for me having read it now, whereas some of the books that I read for SSR, honestly, like I've already forgotten. So for me, it was a good experience. I would recommend it for... Listeners, I also think it's worth noting that the author hated the film adaptation. So Mm -hmm. um, regardless of how you feel about the movie, if you love it or if you hate it, you might have a totally different view of the book because it is quite different. So don't hesitate to pick up the book, even if you feel like you already know all that there is to know based on your viewing of the 1997 slasher Mm -hmm. adaptation.
1: And and I would say, I don't know if I would necessarily recommend it to like a middle grade kid because I don't know what the catalog is. There might be stuff out there that's even better. But to another adult, like, do you just want to go back in time and have a laugh? Absolutely. There's stuff in here that, like I said, I turned to my boyfriend and I'm like, Barry's me too in the 70s. Like, you know, like those little comments, it's fun to read that stuff and reading these artifacts of the 70s as an adult now was just fun. And it's so
0: quick. It's short, you know, and it's dialogue heavy. So you just like run through it. Well, so Barry was 18 in 1973, which means he would be, so that's like 40 years ago. So now he'd be in his like 50s, 60s. Yeah. So he's here. There he is. He is a yeah, full, here he is. he's grown into the, into the Me Too movement. And he is the reason that everything sucks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And another comment I made was he is definitely the guy that if he gets any modicum of power at work is going to have that button under the
0: desk that locks the door.
1: <laughs> like, this is him. Like, this is him. He's the worst.
0: Totally <laughs> shudders down my spine. But yeah. you're, you're so right. Yeah. So aside from I Know What You Did Last Summer, which I really appreciate you reading because I know you do a lot of reading for your own podcast, Literary Roadhouse as well as I'm sure other reading for your life. Um, But is there anything else that you're reading now or that you've read recently that you would love to recommend to our SSR listeners?
1: There's one book from last year that it's really heavy and I read it early last year, but I keep talking about it. And it's The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen. It won the Pulitzer in 2016, but I didn't pick it up till last year. It's really heavy, trigger warnings left and right. But it's so good because it's it's uh, about just at just as Saigon was falling in Vietnam, a bunch of Vietnamese refugees come to L.A. It's like in four parts. The very first part is escaping Vietnam. It's at the end of the war. So you don't see the war itself. You see the escape. The second part is when you're in L.A., the refugees, what it's like to live there. And then the third part is kind of like going back. And it's so good and so complex. And it just gives you a view of America um in a way that i think is required reading it's really really interesting and then for something a little bit sort of lighter i'm trying to think of what's like the lightest thing i've read recently and i don't even know (laughs) like i do so much heavy reading like we've been talking about how we need a break so we're gonna do uh some surreal like comedies coming up but um yeah and we just read milkman uh which won the booker prize last week uh, last year which is also heavy but funny all right, it's well, a tragic
0: I'll, comedy I'll include links to Milkman and The Sympathizer in the show notes yeah. along with a link to I Know What You Did Last Summer for those who want to pick that up as well of course I'm going to include a link to Literary Roadhouse your podcast which I love listeners I'm sure you can already tell this but it's really fun to hear Anais talk about books she's great at it I could listen to you analyze short stories novels all day long so oh, if you want you. more check out Literary Roadhouse I had the pleasure of being on the show recently and it's super fun so check that out thank you so much for your time thank Thank you for reading the book and for talking about it with me today. I had so much fun talking about toxic masculinity and webcasts and hotness and thrillers with you. It's been really great.
1: Yeah, this was so much fun. This book was
0: the perfect throwback. Well, thank you for picking it. It was a great choice. Great. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast.